Well, church, again, like I said, it's great to be with you. If you're, this is a first time or first time in a long time. Uh, we started a series way back in the fall, last September it was, on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past to eternity still future. And uh, with that is coming to a close today. This is the last time we're going to be taking a look at that series. Uh, we've been looking a little bit at the everlasting nature of Jesus, and we're going to be doing that again today uh, in the book of Revelation, looking at not only who he was when, in his first advent and in his first coming, but who he always is and always will be, his everlasting nature. And so, again, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in 14 all the way through 20, pretty common verse. But um, while you're turning there, I want to get a little engagement from you. I want to hear from a, from a few of you guys here um, about some of your pet peeves that you feel really, really passionate about. Okay, so I, I, want a little, I want a little bit of feedback here. We're talking about these are things that really, really greatly annoy you. Maybe they even make you angry, and that's the nature of a peeve. That's what a peeve is. It is an annoyance. If it is a pet peeve, it means it is personal to you. And so this is something that makes you angry or annoyed. Um, and yes, I am very well aware that you may be sitting next to the person who does that to you. So this will be really fun. We'll do reconciliation afterwards. But um, So who, who's got some pet peeves? I want to hear from you guys about... What they, what some of these things may be. There's some good ones in the front, yeah. Not walking on escalators. Not walking on escalators. <laughs> so you don't like the, you don't like the person that's like sitting there going along for the ride, huh? I guess that would kind of go for the airport too. You know those little quick little walk path, pathways. Okay, not walking on escalators. People that drive too slow on escalators. Yes, I heard that one a lot all the time. People who drive too slow in the left lane. Loud chewing, that was number one last, last hour also. The smacking thing, so it's like you're, or you're, you got the open mouth deal and like everybody can see what you're eating for dinner. That's kind of gross. We're uh, against that here at Dallas Bible. All right, Cindy. Ooh, ooh, P yes. Condemnation, there we go. It's kind of dangerous, right? People die like that. Um, what else? We had a few few others here? Yeah. Talking during the movies. Yes, I got a very chatty son that does that all the time. <laughs> very much a talker. So I, so I heard from staff a lot this past week. They're kind of sharing some of those. Travis is like, oh, when my pastor makes me do his intro for him through questions like this. Uh, so I think that, make, that makes sense. Um, not leaving your turn signal on when you're, when you're not turning anymore. Right, like that's a big one. You're like, are you going? Are you going? And you're like, I don't know what to do right there. Um, crumbs, eating in bed, right? Somebody's spouse does that. I will leave that one alone. And let you guys deal with that at home and not call you out there. Leaving dishes in the in the sink and not dealing with those. Hair and toothpaste in the bathroom sink. That was another one that kind of people talked about. We're seeing a lot of like spousal things right here, and I was like, all right, we're gonna do some uh, some pair, some marriage counseling or something afterwards, but uh, excessive PDA out in public, right? People are like, all right, let's, let's, we can keep that inside. Let's come, go home if you're married and, uh, you know, do that kind of thing. And so um, anyway, I was having a lot, a lot of fun with that this past week because the passage we're going to look at today, uh, Jesus is going to be going off on some of his peeves. Uh, you're going to see this in some of the text, and he's going to be addressing these with a number of different churches throughout South Asia, but uh, you're going to see a little insight into some of his favorite pet peeves, and it could probably be a little bit stronger than a peeve there, but I think what we're going to see here is that these are things that are still crippling the church today. Um, anyone want to guess what Jesus' peeve is that we're going to talk about today? This is J Revelation 3.16, very famous verse. You've heard this quite a bit. Yeah, I heard someone say, it's, Luke, it's Christians who are lukewarm in their affections for Jesus. You've heard this word a lot maybe in the church or around the church or something like that. It's Christians who are lukewarm 
uh, in their commitment to love and follow Jesus. I think it was Francis Chan that said that the term lukewarm Christian is probably one of the greatest oxymorons out there, right? Uh, you know what an oxymoron is? is it is two contradictory terms that appear uh, right next to one another, uh, kind of like jumbo shrimp or act naturally, right? Act naturally or Microsoft works, um, something like that. <laughs> Never has. It's always breaking and crashing and stuff like that. Just not healthy by any sort. But he, but he goes on and he just says, like, this is one of the biggest oxymorons out there, this term lukewarm Christian, right? Because a Christian is someone who identifies as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to be lukewarm means that it's only a part-time, half-hearted pursuit at best. That is what he says makes absolutely no sense at all. And I think what we're going to see in this passage here today is that Jesus is going to agree with that assessment. It's going to be exactly what he says to us today. So again, if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to go 14 all the way through 20. Um, all I want to do is talk about the subtle convictions of a lukewarm Christian. And uh, we're going to see, we're going to identify a lot with what he's saying here to the church in Laodicea. And then I want to talk about one of the symptoms of it so that you can know whether or not you may have actually slipped into uh, lukewarm Christianity. So again, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. Um, if you missed it out, out on it last year, probably around this time last year, we did a whole thing on the book of Revelation. Um, it's actually not as complicated as a lot of us think that it is. You read it the first time through and you're kind of going, this reads like my favorite sci-fi novel. A lot of, uh, yeah, like what Travis said, a lot of horns and eyes and things of that nature. And you're going, okay, what means what? Um, is Radabaugh the Antichrist or not? Um, <laughs> You know, like, who, who's this whole thing talking about? And, and we kind of make it a lot more complex than it actually is. But all that the book of Revelation is, is Jesus revealing to us who he actually is in all of eternity and then saying, live now in light of how the whole thing ends. That's what it all is, is all about. It's, it's here's who I actually am. Here's how the whole thing is going to end at the very end. I really am going to come back again. I really am going to judge the living and the dead. I really am going to make all things brand new. Here's what that's going to look like. Here's who I am in the heavenlies. Now, church live now in light of the end. It's the entire message of the book of Revelation. And so in the first few chapters, he's going to be addressing just a few of the different churches, seven actually churches that are spread throughout South Asia. And he's going to be kind of talking to them about, hey, here's, he's going to be applauding them in some ways. Here's some things you're doing really, really, really well. And then here are some of my peeves. Here are some of the things that are kind of, all right, we, we probably need to repent from here. Um, this particular church is a church in Laodicea. And I think you're going to see a lot of similarities between Laodicea and Dallas, Texas today. And so here's what it says beginning in verse 14. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, another word for that may be leader or pastor, something like that. Uh, to the angel or leader of the church of Laodicea, he, he says, these are the words of the Amen. Uh, which is a word that simply means end of story. This is one of the ways that Jesus is revealing himself throughout all of Revelation. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the first. He is the last, right? We end our prayers with amen. This is the end of the story, essentially. And so it's essentially what he's saying here. These are the words of the amen, the one who was there in the beginning, the one who was there in the very, very end. The faithful and true witness, he says, the ruler of God's creation. Then he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. Now, I want to stop right there because this is one of these easy to kind of misunderstand and kind of take out of context a little bit passages right here. Um, at first glance, it kind of seems like he's saying, hey, I wish you were either on fire for Jesus or didn't even love him at all, right? Like, I wish you were either one or the other here. 
Um, it's not what he's saying, right? Jesus has never wished or desired for any of us to, to be nothing at all, to be far away from him and to have zero affection or commitment to him whatsoever. It's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here are two different water sources that the Laodiceans would have known about back in their time. And so one of the water sources are the hot mineral springs in the southern part of Laodicea. Um, these were great springs. If you've ever been out to the Ozarks, um, you know how awesome it is to go to a hot mineral spring. Um, they figured out there's a lot of good medicinal value in those springs. It's very healing. It's very relaxing. It's kind of like going to a spa today. There are those na natural hot springs in the southern part of Laodicea. Um, the, other water, the other water source is going to be coming from the north. And so these are going to be cold streams of water that are going to be flowing down from the mountains that are melted snow, essentially. And these streams are going to be awesome for drinking and for refreshment. And so you've got two different water sources here, both with incredible value. Um, the problem is when they join into the middle here and these two water sources begin to merge. And what takes place then is that now you have a lukewarm, tepid pool that's good for, that's good for pretty much nothing. The fresh water from the north um, dilutes the mineral uh, beauty of the, what's down there in the hot springs. It's not good for healing. It's not good for relaxing. Um, the hot water mixes with the, with, the, with the fresh, cold water from the north. You don't want to really want to drink it or anything. And so that's what he's talking about right here. He's saying, it's not that I want you to be all in or nothing. He's saying, I want you to be all in or all in. Right? I, want you to, I want you to be all in. Like both sources of water had an invaluable purpose. It's kind of like drinking coffee in the morning. First thing in the morning, I love a good cup of hot coffee. You know what I'm talking about? Like I love my hot coffee. Um, coffee's also good in the afternoon on a hot day if you're having iced coffee. Right? What's terrible is that cup of coffee that you left out on the counter. Uh, you poured it at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's now 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You come back. It's warm and it's tepid. Uh, you don't want to drink that coffee. Like, no one wants that coffee. Like, it's great when it's either really, really hot or really, really cold. And what he's saying is, I wish that you were all in. I wish that you were all there. I wish that you were refreshing in, in the ways that you live, or I wish that you were healing in the way that, ways that you live. Right, So that, like, that's what we're talking about. It's not just about, hey, I wish you were um, just that passionate about Jesus, although passion would be a part of what he's talking about right there. So here's what he says in verse 16. He says, because you're neither one, because you're actually lukewarm, you're tepid, you're kind of like the kiddie pool at the, um, at the neighborhood right there, because you're neither one of these things, because you even as a church, um, you're not doing what you've designed to do. He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's a pretty visceral reaction, right? It's, it's a pretty gross image that he, that he uses right there. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, anything you've eaten before. You've kind of had that, oh, I can't take this, I'm, i, I got to get it out of my mouth. I'm thinking of, I was in Nairobi, Kenya one time, and uh, if you've ever been to Nairobi, Kenya as a visitor, you want to go visit this restaurant called The Carnivore. It's the place to go. Anybody been there? There's a lot of people out there at first. Or you've been there before. You know, an awesome restaurant. It's kind of like a Texas Day Brazil, a Brazilian steakhouse. They walk around with meat on swords, which I think is the greatest invention ever, right? Like all meat should be served on giant swords and spears. Um, and then they come around and they slice it off for you and you eat as much as you want. Um, that's African style there. And so they bring about all these game meats and these weird things. Um, and they bring legitimate stuff too, like chicken, beef, and, and, and pork. But you've got like alligator, you've got camel, you've got, um, you've got ox heart, elephant, giraffe. Uh, they've got all these really, really weird game meats and stuff. And I remember coming by and they brought ox heart one time. 
and they're going, you got to try the ox heart. I'm like, I really don't have to try the ox heart, right? But, the, you know, I was with a bunch of guys, and, of course, they pulled the man card out, and, you, you know, you got to do whatever. That's challenge. you got to say yes. And so I tried the ox heart, and I'm not kidding. As soon as I put it in my mouth, it was just like immediately came right back out, right? It was just one of these things. It was just so, it was in my head. Like I'm eating somebody's heart. That's kind of gross. And then it just tasted just foul and disgusting, too. And the point of the matter is, like, that's the image that Jesus is using right here to describe the lukewarm Christian. And he says, this is, this is what's going on here in Laodicea. You're, you're not hot. You're not cold. You're not, you're not doing what I've designed you to do. You're not any of the things that I've called you into. Instead, you're lukewarm. And, and it's, not just, it's not just an annoyance. It's not just a little peeve of mine. But it actually makes me want to spit it out of my mouth. It continues on. I want you to notice what he says in 17. Because 17 is why... Uh, they are this way. Here's what it says. He says, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. You say that I am rich and that I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. Now, when he's talking about rich, you got to understand what he's talking about because it's not just, hey, you're a little bit more well-off than the rest of the world or your friends or your neighbors or something like that. He's saying, like, you're absurdly rich. That's what Laodicea was. Um, reason we know this, in about 61 AD, there was a massive earthquake which uh, brutalized pretty much all the surrounding cities of that region, and uh, everything was destroyed, probably a million times worse than the storm we had a couple weeks ago. And as a result, the Roman government came out there, and they started offering money to all the surrounding cities, saying, hey, we're going to help you rebuild your city. Uh, we're going to help you rebuild here. And they came to Laodicea, and they said, here, here's this money. We want to help you rebuild your city. And the Laodiceans said, hey, thanks for your money, but no thanks. We've actually got it. We're that well off. We're that accomplished. We've got that much good. We're going to take care of things ourselves. So has, that ever been, has that ever happened in the history of the world where people said no to money that government is wanting to give to you? I mean, who does that, right? I mean, it's exactly what they're doing, though. They're, they're going, hey, you know what? We don't need your help. We don't want your money. We've got this, and we, we've got this under control. Like, Laodicea was known as a, as a very successful textile center of the world. This is the place that all the rich from around the world would come to buy a lot of their clothes because they had this very fine, um, this very fine black wool that came from this very rare sheep living in the mountains there. And, like, everybody, all the wealthy people wanted it that was there. And so they had these awesome markets, and, like, that was the shopping center of the world at that time. Everybody came there. They made so much money there. Um, on top of that, like Laodicea was known for its innovation, for its technology, for its advancements, and it was actually known as the medical center of the entire Roman Empire, uh, right? They figured out a way, um, not only did they have those hot springs that are down there in the south, but they figured out a way to use the minerals from those hot springs, be able to create different medicines, I'm assuming essential oils, of course, right? Um, and they, they've created all those things down there, and they figured out, hey, there's a lot of medicinal value to these different things. And so this is the medical center of the entire Roman Empire. And so not only were they incredibly wealthy, but they were advanced technologically, they were incredibly smart, they were incredibly frugal, and, they, and this is kind of the place to be. Church, are you seeing any similarities between Laodicea and Dallas? I mean, wealthy, smart, self-sufficient. And, of course, you need to hear me on this because there's absolutely nothing wrong with being wealthy, smart, and independent of, of, the, of, of being dependent upon other people around you or anything like that. Unless you begin to subtly believe, like the Laodiceans did, that I really don't need a thing. It's the attitude that marks their lukewarm Christianity. 
In the middle of all this wealth, in the middle of all, middle of all this money, in the middle of all this self-sufficiency, I've gotten to this point in, in all of my comfort. I'm looking around and I'm going, kind of going, you know what? I've got my two and a half kids. I've got my white picket fence. I've got great schools. I've got air conditioning. I've got comfort. I've got cars. I've got a great job. And you know what? I, I, I really don't need a thing. And so here's what he says. He says, he says uh, you say I am rich. I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But here's the problem. Like, you don't even realize that you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, blind, and naked in comparison to me. In comparison to what I want to do for you, in the, comparison to what I want to do in you and through you and for you and for the rest of the world, like you don't even understand that you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You are so obsessed with your business success. You are so obsessed with what everybody else is saying about you. You are so comfortable in the way that you are living around here. You can't even see how needy you actually are. And so he says in verse 18, I advise you then to buy gold from me that's been refined in the fire so that you can actually become rich. In other words, he's offering this gold, essentially, this metaphorical gold. He's saying, I'm advising you to buy this gold from me rather than getting it from the rest of the world. And it's a gold that's going to be refined through fire, through obstacle, through trial, through a little bit of pain. And what you need is white clothes to wear, he says, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And what you need is salve on your eyes so that you can actually see. And then he says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. By the way, it's a great thing to hold on to because discipline rarely feels like love in the moment, does it? Right? Some of you are in the middle of discipline right now, maybe, and those are hard things to discern sometimes. What's, what are things I'm bringing upon myself? What's actually discipline of the Lord? But like some of us are in the middle of that, and, and whether you're a kid and you're getting it from your parents or whether you're an adult and you're getting it from the Lord or something like that, like discipline is never a thing that's easy to accept, and it never feels like love in the moment. But what he's saying is, I, I, because I love you, those whom I love, I will actually rebuke and I'll actually discipline. What would be unloving is if I simply said, hey, go do whatever you want. I could care less what you do. That's the unloving parent. And he's saying, I don't want that. And so here's what he says. He says, be earnest, church, and repent. Be earnest and repent. Here it is. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Church, where is, uh, where is Jesus in that picture? I mean, Jesus is on the outside looking in on that picture. And it's important to see this because this is another one of these parts that kind of gets misunderstood a lot of times. We use this in a lot of evangelistic presentations in order to say, hey, Jesus is on the outside of your life, you unsaved person. You need to invite him into your life. And it's just not the context that Jesus is speaking to right here. He's very specifically speaking to the church in Laodicea who is in the middle of a lukewarm um, acknowledgement of him, if you will. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. He's speaking to the Laodiceans in the middle of their lukewarmness, and he's saying, I am on the outside of your life. In other words, church, uh, these are people who have figured out that there's a way to do life, and that there's a way to do church, and there's a way to do religion that doesn't even need Jesus to be a part of it. Are you with me? That's who he's speaking to right here. I mean, and I'm going to ask you again, is any of this resonating at all with the state of the church in America today, or even the state of the church here in Dallas, Texas today? I mean, I'll never forget a number of years ago, um, back when I was in seminary, we were having this conversation in a, in a class one time um, about the complacency of the American church. And we were all talking about it and, and, and doing a, having a lot of comments about it. And all of a sudden, um, the professor asked one of the guys in my class to kind of get up and say, hey, I'd love to hear your take on it. He was an Indian student. Uh, he'd been in the United States for about two to three years at this point in time. And he goes, you're newer, to the, you're, you're newer to the states, and so you're seeing the church in America with very fresh eyes for the very first time. I'd love to get your take on, on what you're seeing here. And I'll never forget, the guy stood up, and he's like, yeah, quite honestly, I, 
uh, I've been shocked by what I found here uh, in the church in America. And he went on to share some of his story on how he was living in a very militant area of India when a lone rogue missionary infiltrates into the tribe, shares this Jesus video with his tribe. It piqued his interest. Uh, he was run out of the village by the elders and everybody else. This student goes and finds him in the, in the other village and stuff and finds him and wants to watch that video again to discover who this Jesus is. Um, that guy shares the gospel with this student. He comes to faith, goes back to his militant village, begins sharing the gospel with a bunch of his other friends in this militant village. Uh, the leaders and the elders and his family find out about his newfound conversion. They bring him in front of everybody and they make he and all of his friends recant to their faith. Otherwise, they're going to be kicked out of the village and, and uh, basically kind of left behind. Uh, they were torturing them. They were beating them right there. Like family members were beating him in front of everybody else. And, uh, and he goes, a lot of my friends walked away from the faith that day, but I never did. That guy, I, I left. My family kicked me out of the village, and I had nowhere to go. That missionary gave me a New Testament, and he goes, I clung to that New Testament for dear life. Like I devoured every single word of God's word so that I can know the joy of his fellowship. I was on my knees praying for deliverance every single day. All I knew of the American church was what I saw in that missionary. I knew that the American church sent missionaries all around the world to go and to do exactly what that guy was doing. I even heard rumors that the majority of America was even saved and that there was a church at every single street corner. And he goes, I heard all these things about America. I could not wait to get here to study. And he's like, it's not what I found in the church today. He goes, I go to the church today, and it seems like Christians today, like they don't even like worshiping. He goes, it seems like Christians here, we don't even pray very much. They don't give very much. They don't serve very much or even share the gospel very much, and they don't even enjoy worshiping Jesus very much. Church, when 60 to 65% of our country acknowledges faith in Jesus Christ and says, hey, I'm in that Christian camp still to this day, but less than 12% uh, have read their Bible at least one time in the past week in any kind of a devotional capacity. When less than 18% have attended a church worship service, uh, willingly, I'll say, in any, at any time in the past six months. When less than 18% have prayed at least one time in the past week in any kind of a devotional capacity. So I'm not talking about 635, Jesus, I need you to part traffic. Um, I'm not talking about Jesus, bless my food, give me safe travel, that kind of a thing. But when less than 18% have prayed one time a week in any kind of a devotional capacity and less than 5% have actually shared their faith with someone else at any given time in the past year, um, it's not a stretch to say we are Laodicea. We are Laodicea. Like, this, is exact, like, this is not a new problem. This isn't, and, and by the way, church, it's not just our problem either. But this is a problem that has plagued believers from the very, very beginning. We saw this all the way back in Judges, the, ups, the ebbs and flows in the nation of Israel. We saw it throughout the kings. We saw it um, in the conquest, the Babylonian, the Assyrian conquest all throughout the Old Testament. This is coming into the New Testament, right? This is here in the first century. Um, at the end of the first century, like right after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, we know that this is a problem that has plagued the church from the very, very beginning. That there's a way to do life. There's a way to do religion. There's a way to worship God that does not even need him to be a part of it at all. Like we are Laodicea. And the problem is that much like Laodicea, we are in the exact same boat where we think to ourselves, hey, I've got no real needs. I'm good. I'm comfortable. I've got AC. I've got cars. I've got my kids in education. We're healthy relatively. We've got fellowship. We've got safety. We've got freedom. We've got all these different things. And we think to ourselves things like, hey, I'm actually pretty good and I have no real need. Meanwhile, our marriages are falling apart at the exact same rate as pretty much the rest of the world. Not exact same, a tiny, tiny bit underneath it. Like meanwhile, we're almost as addicted as the rest of the world. We're pretty much as unhappy as the rest of the world, and we're pretty much as depressed and as anxious as everyone else. 
Church, when 75% of men and 50% of women who identify as Christian are going to intentionally look at pornography sometime in the next three months and increase their chance of marital infidelity by 300%, like, uh, we've, there's, we are Laodicea. It's a definition of lukewarm. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ when I want to, when I can be following him. Church, 62% of our teenagers and young adults are involved with sexting today. In other words, they're sending or receiving explicit images from people that they know on their phone at any given point in the past year. 62% of teenagers involved in that. 20% of our teenage girls, 15% of our boys have engaged in cutting at any point, at some point um, this past year. It's an enormous amount of our students that are going that direction. The suicide rate among millennials and Gen Z is twice the rate of any other generation. Almost 33% of our young adults today are diagnosed as clinically depressed. Culturally, like, think, take a look at what's happening culturally. Like, we've redefined massive, massive things like sexuality, marriage, gender, and who is actually alive and considered a human being. I mean, I mean we're, we're celebrating and affirming our right to kill unborn, unprotected children up until the time that they're born. And, of course, all of this says nothing about the unbelievable amount of young adults that are walking away from the faith in droves today. I mean, you know what the fastest growing religious designation among 18 and 29-year-olds is today? It's the rise of the nuns. We, we've heard this a lot, not nuns like, hey, I'm going to a convent or anything like that. The rise of, uh, right, there's, that's not growing, I promise you. Um, <laughs> the rise of the nuns. People who are identifying and saying, hey, I have no re religious designation. I, I, I don't have a religious, I don't want to be boxed in by all these labels. I want to be able to define my own sense of God, my own sense of truth, my own sense of right and wrong. Or I don't want anybody else to have authority over my life. Uh, or saying I don't believe in anything. 45% of young adults, 18 to 29, which is 10% more than any other generation, are identifying and saying, hey, I am identifying as a nun over here, which means, church, that we are not doing a great job of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, the light of the world. We are not doing a great job of raising up the next generation or making any kind of disciples. Church, how in the world can we sit here and say, I have nothing, I have no needs? How in the world can we think to ourselves like Laodicea, hey, we're good, I've got, because I've got AC, and I've got a roof over my head, and I've got a car, and I've got education, and I'm smart, and I'm making pretty good money, and, and I've got good clothes. And like, how in the world can we think to ourselves and say, hey, like I have no real need? Like it's the mentality, it is the conviction that keep people in lukewarm Christianity today. It is the thing. And we, we sit there and like, we think to ourselves, hey, I've got it under control, I'm fine. And meanwhile, what Jesus is showing us all throughout the book of Revelation is that he is the one who is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. He is the one who provides us all things. We are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked in comparison to who he is and in comparison to what he wants to do in and through our lives. He is the alpha and omega. He is the prince of peace and the king of kings and the lord of lords and the everlasting father and the king of all kings. And he's the one who's coming back again to judge the living and the dead. He's the one who's coming back again to make all things brand new. Church, like how in the world can we not think that we are de in desperate need of him every single minute of the day? I mean, listen to the psalmist. Psalm 40, 17 is going to say this. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Oh, God, don't delay. You know who wrote that psalm, church? David did. You know, King David, the most wealthy, the most powerful man in all of Israel, the guy who slayed Goliath. The most self-sufficient, the most powerful, the most articulate, the person that everyone else in the nation wants to be like, that person is the one that's simply saying, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. 
You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Psalm 70 says the same thing. As for me, O God, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and deliverer. Do, no, do not delay. Psalm 79, 8. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly and meet me, for I am desperately in need of you. Church, like that's what's missing from our worship, and that's what's missing from our convictions. It is this humility which simply says, I desperately need you for everything. And church, in case I'm not being abundantly clear, it's exactly what we're saying in this text. Like, I need you to do everything because I can't do anything in comparison to what you can do. I need you to come and to save. I need your blood to come and to cleanse me of my sins and to give me forgiveness and to give me grace. I need your fellowship every single day of my life. I need your Holy Spirit to come and to produce your life in me things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I need you to come and to produce those things in me. Like I need you to guide me in wisdom and truth. I need you to come and to bring your healing physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I need you to come and to heal marriages and to break addictions and to reconcile broken relationships. I need your blessing and favor upon my life. I need you to shine on me. Like I need you to be okay. I need your favor in my personal life. I need your favor and your blessing upon this church body for anything good and eternal to come from it. I need your blessing and your favor over our country, that you would smile on America maybe for the first time, if I could say it like that, and that we would understand who we are in light of who you are, oh God. We need you in every possible way. We need your provision. We need your protection. I need your power so that this next generation won't keep running away from the church, that they may understand the hope of the gospel for the very first time. God, I need you for absolutely everything. And it's just not what the lukewarm Christian thinks. The lukewarm says, God, I'm pretty good. I've got everything that I want. Because all I ever wanted was some safety, some convenience, some comfort, some AC, some schools, a good paycheck, someone to do life with. And what Jesus is saying is that you can't even see that we're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I love how Martin Luther King talk, Jr. talks about this in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Here's what he says. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed society. I love this. Small in number, but big in commitment. I love that. Pray that all the time. Church, may DBC be small in number and big in commitment. Maybe some of you need to hear that. Maybe I'm small in stature. Maybe I'm small in gifting. Maybe I'm small in popularity among, among my peers, but may I be big in commitment. It says that they were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated by numbers. By their effort and example, they brought to an end such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiator games. In other words, their love for him and what he was doing in them, it drove them to be involved culturally and socially around them to put an end to the injustice that was being done around them. Things are different now, he says, and if today's church doesn't recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Church, he wrote that in the 60s, by the way. Like, what are we seeing today? Authenticity is the last thing that people are going to use to describe what they see in the church today. We've forfeited the loyalty of millions, and we're becoming more and more easy to dismiss as an irrelevant social club with no meaning in the 21st century. 
I mean, that's what's at stake with lukewarm Christianity. There's one symptom of lukewarm Christianity that I think we've got to pay attention to, and I think it's kind of the outpouring of this attitude, which simply says, hey, I have need of nothing, and it's simply prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. And we're not going to explicitly see this in this text, but I think any gathering of people that says things like, hey, I'm rich, and I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing, or or maybe you're sitting here kind of going, okay, I'm not rich, I haven't acquired wealth, I'm very uh, middle class, maybe lower class or something like that, and I'm uh, definitely not that, but I'm still self-sufficient and I still don't need a thing. Like if that's our mentality, then I'm willing to bet that, hey, we may be a people that pray around the dinner table. We may be a people that pray in times of crisis or when we're on 635 when we need traffic to part or something like that. But I'm willing to bet we won't be a people that wear out our knees in prayer every single day saying, God, we need you to come and do something that I cannot do for, for myself. There's a lot of different symptoms we can talk about, but uh, this is the one that I think that, that, that God is going to hit us with probably the most. You know, the reason is that there's two things that are required for a healthy prayer life. The first one is um, a love for the presence of God. If you have a love for the presence of God, prayer will not be difficult for you. The second thing is a desperation for him to move. And not only in you, but in you and through you to the rest of the world. If you've got one of those two things, prayer will not be that difficult for you to do. Love for the presence of God and a desperation for him to move. In other words, it's this idea that it's this this deep-seated conviction that's saying, hey, you know what? I am desperate. I am needy. I do need him to move. There are things I cannot do in my life. I need him to come in to do everything that I cannot do. We've talked about this a lot before, but desperation is one of those things that will always drive your prayer life. Uh, You will pray when you feel desperate. You see it all the time. Like You will pray whenever you feel desperate. Whenever you lost your job, what did you do? You pray. You got down on your knees and you said, if there's a God in heaven, would you come and bring me a new job? When your loved one got sick, you sent that email to friends and families and you said, I need everybody to pray. You posted it on Facebook and Instagram and everything else. And you asked for people to pray. 9-11. You remember what happened in 9-11? You guys remember where you were on 9-11? One of the greatest tragedies we've ever experienced here um, in America. And um, I'll never forget being at Texas A&M that day, watching the TV and And like all of our roommates came out there together and we just sat there in total and complete silence. Walked around campus that day and there wasn't a word being spoken anywhere on campus that day. That night, the entire campus, we filled up Reed Arena um, at Texas A&M, which is the basketball stadium that's there. And we had a prayer vigil and prayer meeting that night that just filled up Reed Arena. I mean, that's what desperation does. Like when you feel desperate, you will absolutely pray. Like that's how desperation works. It reveals what's going on in your heart and it reveals what you're desperate for him to do. So that's true, church. Let me ask you this question then. Um, If you did an inventory of all of your prayers from the past year, like what would it say about your temperature, whether or not you're hot or cold or whether or not you're lukewarm? I mean, if you did an inventory of all of your prayers from this past year, what would it say about what you're desperate for God to do in your life? Maybe I need to put it a different way. This is a way I've talked about it in the past. But if Jesus decided to come by and say yes to every single one of your prayers, maybe even all of your prayers from this past week alone, um, would anyone need to be saved? Would, let me ask you, would you need to repent of anything? Or would it just be your spouse, your kids, your annoying neighbor, your coworkers, your boss, the president, our politicians, the church leaders, the different people that you read about in the newspaper? Like, would you actually need to repent of anything if Jesus came through and he he just answered all of your prayers from this past week? 
I love how Tozer talks about this. He says, for the lukewarm Christian, it's one compromise here, another one there, no repentance anywhere in between. After a while, the so-called Christian looks the exact same as everyone else in the world. Church, would, would God be glorified in any tangible way? Or would you just have blessed food, safe travel, and a little bit more of a comfortable life? Church, what does your prayer life reveal about how you feel about being in the presence of God? The fact that you have access to the Holy of Holies and you have that access because God in his infinite love sent his one and only son to die upon a cross for you. He shed his blood for you that you can have access to the Holy of Holies. So, I mean, it's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 with the Lord's Prayer. I mean, you remember this whole thing. His disciples are saying, hey, how do we pray? And he says, here's how to pray. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the Pharisees that go to the street corners and only do it in public in order to be seen by other people. Here's what I want to know. Go to the private room when no one else is around. There's nothing else going on here. I want to know if you want to pray right then. I want to know if you're willing to pray when there's nothing else to be had except me in my presence. And you remember how he teaches them to pray. He says, here's, you want to know how to pray? Begin with this. Here's what you begin with before you get to your list of, hey, I need bread, I need food, I need clothes, I need all these other things. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Worshipped be your name. Holy, revered be your name. You want to know how to pray? You begin with that. Church, when was the last time that you got down on your knees simply because you could? Like, when was the last time that we came before the Lord and we actually said, God, I'm here, I, I just, I just want to be in your presence. I just want to enjoy you today because you are holy beyond anything I can, I can think about. You are altogether righteous. You loved me when I was unlovable. You did for me what I could not do for myself. You are the everlasting, the everlasting. You are the alpha, the omega. You are the wonderful counsel, the prince of peace, the almighty God. You are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. When was the last time you got on your knees simply because you could, simply to worship? I mean, I love the psalmist. He says, this is my favorite verse in all of scripture. He says this in Psalm 27, 4. One thing that I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, simply to behold your beauty and to meditate in your temple. That's it. There's one thing that I've asked of God that I shall seek is simply to be in your presence, to be able to behold who you are, to be able to behold your beauty and to simply just to meditate in your temple. Church, like when was the last time we got on our knees to simply because we could and simply to worship? I mean, Psalm 119, my soul languishes for your salvation and I wait for your word, O God. Isaiah says the same thing. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. Church, like when was the last time that we prayed? Simply to worship and simply because we could. Bottom line is that our prayer life reveals everything about what's going on inside of here. You want to know, am I lukewarm in my faith? Your prayer life will speak directly to that thing. If it is weak, it may be a sign that you have slipped into a little bit of lukewarm Christianity. And granted, like I said, it's not the only sign. There's a lot of different symptoms. There's a lot of different things that, that you're going to be able to notice and see from lukewarm Christianity here. We could talk about missional living. We could talk about minimizing sin and never repenting of anything. We could talk about um, how fragile we are when it comes to anything, needing to repent from anything. We could talk about our lack of generosity and how we're only generous if there's an abundance in my bank account. Um, we could talk about how our convictions are being shaped more than culture than they are the word of God. We could talk about how worship just really isn't my thing. We could talk about all kinds of symptoms. But the bottom line is that like if we, studily, if we stu subtly started to believe like the Laodiceans, like I don't actually need a thing, then it will kill your prayer life. And if your prayer life goes, then so will your ability to be all in. And before you know it, we will eventually begin to look exactly like the rest of the world. I want you to see this invitation. I'm going to wrap up with this. 
Here it is. This is the invitation that Jesus makes to the lukewarm Christian, to the Christian in Dallas, self-included in so many ways, to the Laodicean. He simply says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And some of you need to hold on to that again because the only reason he is rebuking and you are feeling conviction is because he loves you and wants to draw you back in. But he says this, he says very, very simply, be earnest and repent, church. Be earnest and repent. In other words, don't go to Luby's immediately after this and just look at the menu afterwards and, and go on about your day playing golf and every, all the other things that we do. We, we all do them. I do them myself too. But don't do all those different things. He says simply be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens up this door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will eat with me. In other words, church, the invitation for the lukewarm Christian is the exact same one that was there at the very beginning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you will simply open up this door, I will come in and I will eat with you again. I will be center in your life again. I will provide for you everything that you can possibly need in this life to thrive in relationship with me, and you will enjoy the joy of my fellowship once again. I'm going to invite you to pray with me.